0: Hey, we're kicking off a, a new sermon series this morning through the book of Genesis. First book of the Bible, uh, at least in, in the way it's ordered for us. Genesis is a book about beginnings. That's, that's what the word Genesis actually means. It comes from a, a Greek word meaning origin, which comes directly from the opening verse of the book, which reads, in the beginning God created the heavens in the earth in this sermon series we're going to go back to the beginning of things back to the beginning of the material universe back to the beginning of human life back to the beginning of the institutions of marriage and family back to the beginning of work we'll go back to the to the origin of sin and to the birthplace of suffering and of conflict and pain on the earth and even of death. In this series we're going to go back to the beginnings of God's plan of salvation. To the first promise in the Bible of a coming Savior King who will eventually make the world right again. We'll go back to the beginnings of the nations of the world and to the beginning of one specific nation one particular nation one that God creates from scratch to bring blessing to the to a world in its rebellion against him the book of genesis informs the world of where we've all come from this is the story of the beginnings of world history Genesis, you could say, teaches us about our roots, about our core identity and purpose as human beings. It helps us make sense of who we are and why we're here, why we exist. Genesis is here to help us make sense of our inherent sense of morality and justice. Where exactly did that come from? We'll find out in the book of Genesis. It shows us the kind of moral order and standards that are meant to govern the way we live. Genesis shows us why the world in which we live is so messed up as well, why it's so full of suffering and trouble and pain. And it teaches us how we ought to live in that world as it tells us about those who have lived in it long before any of us ever got here. And yet at the same time Genesis isn't just a book that merely looks back in time it also teaches us to look ahead to the future and to look at the future with with both sobriety on the one hand and hope on the other Genesis is a is a book full of glorious encouraging gospel promises promises that insist that a day is coming when God will make the world right again and in fact will make the world far better than it ever has been before, even in the beginning. So Genesis takes us back to the beginning and then it points us forward to the end of all things, to the purpose for which God created the world and the goal for humanity and the, and the rest of creation that he is sure to achieve takes us back to where we've been to show us where we're headed and to help us get ready for the future that God has in store for his people and for the rest of the world. So the book of Genesis is an important book uh, of the Bible and it's important for many reasons, not the least of those reasons being that it teaches us how to relate rightly to God how to relate rightly to God, to God, our creator and king, to the one who brought us into existence, to the one who made us and owns us and loves us and desires that we love him in return. It teaches us that we live in God's world, that this is his world and not our own, never was, never will be. And it stresses to us the urgency of living in this world accordingly. It reminds us that there is a God and that we are not him, while also reminding us that this God is very good. And although he may make us uncomfortable by his commands and confuse us by his decisions and even, you know, baffle us by his providences, we... He, he can nevertheless and must nevertheless be trusted and worshipped in all things. So I can't think of a better time to go back to this book, not, not simply for our church, but for the days in which we're all living. Not, not just for our own instruction and our own encouragement as a church, but also for our equipping as we seek to engage with those who do not yet truly know God and are not yet reconciled to God as we help people see that they are creatures made in the image of God who owe their existence to God and will never be satisfied nor saved without God. And as we seek to help them make sense of their own lives and make sense of the world as we seek to help them see the truth about who God is and who they are and what this life is all about. I think people today, more, maybe more than ever in certain ways, have no clue where they live. About whose world this is. And about who they are. About why they exist. About how they're meant to live. And that's not just people out there, okay? Lost people living out there in the world. That's people inside the church as well. But God wants us to know these things. He wants us to know these things so that we might relate to him rightly and, and relate to ourselves rightly and even relate to others rightly and to the rest of the world rightly and so fulfill the purpose for which we and the rest of the created world were made. The book of Genesis answers the most fundamental questions of life, where this world came from, what human beings are what the purpose of life on this earth is. Questions that the, the great scientists and philosophers of this world have worked for centuries to answer by the power of logic and reason alone and even to this day can barely begin to answer. All that to say, I'm very excited about this journey through the book of Genesis that we're about to embark on and I pray that it proves to be a very profitable profitable one for all of us. What I want to do today, though, is set the stage for this journey and give us a feel for the lay of the land, you could say, that we're going to be walking through together in this book. So today we're going to kind of study uh, a, a proverbial map of Genesis, a metaphorical map of Genesis so that. Once we get into it, we'll know where we are and we'll know where we're headed. And so to this end, to, the, to that end, we're going to look at uh, two things this morning. That is the setting of Genesis and the layout of Genesis, the setting and the layout of Genesis. And by the end of our time, I think, hope we should all have kind of a decent grasp on the basic message of Genesis as well. So let's talk about the setting of Genesis. It's important for us to understand that the book of Genesis was first delivered, most likely, to the people of Israel as they are wandering in the wilderness sometime after they were rescued from slavery in Egypt through Moses. Traditionally, Genesis, as well as the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy has have been ascribed to Moses. And the New Testament seems to agree with this, uh, always speaking of the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Pentateuch, just means five books, first five books of the Bible. The New Testament, whenever it speaks of the Pentateuch as a whole, it refers to them as the book of books of Moses. Genesis is never singled out as a as a different sort of work, as as a, something that fits in its own category. Genesis is clearly the precursor to the story of Moses. And the people of Israel told in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. So there's no good reason, in my view, to think that Genesis was written by anyone other than Moses as well. That's not to say that Moses thought up all the material in Genesis. You know, for surely all the things in the book had been passed down to him verbally over a few centuries from the days of Noah and later Abraham. Nor did he necessarily write literally, Every word in the Pentateuch, every word in those first five books, uh, we know that because, for example, his death is recorded as a past tense event in the book of Deuteronomy. It's kind of hard to write about your own death. Um, I'm sure it could be done. Jesus did it, but Moses didn't. It's simply to say that Moses is the most likely candidate for the one who put all of these verbal traditions and stories down in writing for the people. So then Moses is writing to deliver an earth early history of the world and the early history of Israel to Israel and for Israel as they wander around the wilderness for 40 years as God is preparing them through the leadership of Moses to enter the Promised Land. Now, if we if we give that some thought, it shouldn't be hard to see why such a history would have been needed for the people in the wilderness. Imagine if you were born and and you grew up as a teenager there in in the wilderness uh, on your way to Canaan. You weren't part of that generation that was miraculously rescued from Egypt. You didn't pass through the Red Sea. You didn't see the waters crashed down on the armies of Pharaoh. You, you were born in a tent in the desert among a nation of people without a home, without a land. And you're just moving from the day you were born. You've just been moving from place to place to place following this pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud around, eating the same food every day. Some some mysterious food. What is it again? Manna from heaven. I mean, what on earth is going on? That's what you'd be thinking. Where are we? Where is my home? When are we going to get there? Where are we going? How did we get here? And then though you've heard some stories about how you've, how you got here, the people who told them are starting to die off. whole generation who experienced the, the great rescue from Egypt begins to pass away. What did they tell us again? You remember what, what they say? How'd this happen? Why we're we here? How did we get here again? Where are we going again? What, why are we doing this? It might be helpful in that situation to have an authoritative record of your history. And of your future, wouldn't you think, in that setting. So that's the general setting of the book of Genesis. Israel is in the wilderness, headed for the promised land. And Genesis teaches and reminds them, at least in part, of the way they got there. And of the God who is with them there. Now how about for the layout of Genesis? As for the layout of Genesis, it's pretty clearly divided into two unequally portioned parts. Part 1 is chapters 1 to 11. Part 2 is chapters 12 to 50. So part 1 of Genesis, that's uh, chapters 1 through 11, focuses on the beginnings of world history. This is like primeval history. Chapters 1 through 11 tell the story of the earliest ages of world history. Part 2 of Genesis, then, that starts in chapter 12 and goes all the way to the end, turns very sharply to focus on a single nation, the nation of Israel, and the, and the great patriarchs of that nation, starting with Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. So the book begins by speaking about events that are some like 4,000 years prior to the coming of Christ to the world. And then ends with events occurring somewhere around 1600 B.C. or so with Joseph, the son of Jacob, rising to power in Egypt. And then the people of Israel moving to Egypt to escape a famine in their land. That's quite a big span, right? covers a lot of ground there. So those are the two parts of Genesis, but lest we think that those two parts, those two histories, the history of the world and then the beginnings of the history of Israel are unrelated so that we don't think that, that the, the history of the earliest days of the world and the earliest days of Abraham and the people of Israel, so we don't think those are unrelated, the connection between these two parts is a vital one and we need to point that out. The story of Abraham that starts in chapter 12 and goes to the end of the, the book here, the end of Genesis. The story of Abraham and his descendants is a critical turning point in the history of the world. And as we'll see as we work through Genesis, it, it's the way that God fulfills his purposes and intentions for the world as a whole. It all centers in what he does through this man Abraham and his descendants. So to get a little more specific, help us see how this layout works in the book of Genesis. I uh, want to kind of look at the book from a bird's eye view this morning. Um, and maybe you can follow along as I point out where we're at. We're not going to read a ton. We're not going to st- you know, dive into specific sentences and words and all of that. We're just going to get a, a lay of the land here. So in the opening chapter of the book, go to Genesis 1. In the opening chapter of the book, we're introduced to God, to the creator and ruler of the universe. We're told that all things that exist came from him, that he is the source and the origin of the material, physical world and everything that lives in it. We see that in verse one of chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the summary goes in the first verse of the book. So in chapter one, we meet God and we see that he is omnipotent and he is benevolent. He's all loving and all powerful. He's He's sovereign and very, very good. He's the very source of beauty and pleasure and joy. He's the fountain of life. He's the creator of every good thing. That's Chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, we meet ourselves, human beings, and we're there introduced to the parents of all humanity, this couple named Adam and Eve. And we find that they're special, direct creations of God who are created for the express purpose of representing God to the rest of creation. That's what it means. When we're told that they were made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, which means, generally speaking, that man was made to serve and glorify God on the earth, to live in such a way that all creation can get a sense of what the Creator is like, to give creation a glimpse of His goodness and His wisdom and compassion and justice and kindness and love, to image God, to reflect who God is. That's what man was made for. That's what you and I were made for. Man is made by God and for God. His, his purpose for existence cannot be explained or understood apart from God. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the old confession says. So in chapter one, toward the end, and then in chapter 2, we also see that God promises life and blessing to those who live under his authority and death to those who rebel against him. That's a key movement in the story, that there are consequences for whether or not man lives faithfully as God's image in this world. So Genesis 1 and 2 tells man what to do as a blessing to him. It says that God blessed them and then commanded them, and the command was actually the blessing, or at least part of it. He blesses man by giving man guidelines, by issuing commands. And in fact, there's one command that sticks out, one command in particular that kind of communicates this idea that man is supposed to live under the authority of God and the command is you can enjoy everything you see except the fruit that's hanging on one particular tree in this garden where, that God has prepared for man and placed him in to live. Mm-hmm. The assumption in that command is that it's going to go well for humans only if they follow God's commands which teaches us that we were created to live under God's authority, under his rule. That's where we thrive, not apart from him, not doing whatever we want, but by obeying and honoring our creator. But quickly into the story, things take a turn for the worse, don't they? In chapter three, if you keep flipping through, in chapter three, man rebels against God's authority and is judged by God for it. See that in Genesis 3, instead of honoring the creator, Adam rebels against the creator. Instead of obeying his word, Adam obeys a rebel desire in his gut. Instead of seeking to live under God's authority, Adam seeks freedom from God and tries to show that he doesn't need God, which as God said it would, resulted in death spiritual death first, alienation from God first, hostility even enmity between God and man first and then physical death later toward the end of Genesis 3 though God pronounces a curse upon man, upon woman upon the one who deceived them into disobeying God and upon the rest of creation and that curse makes it clear that the consequences of sin are going to be dramatic. And they're going to, they're going to expand throughout history and throughout the world. The, the tentacles of this decision to rebel against God are going to reach through the earth. And immediately we see that in chapters 4 and 5 as people start dying off one by one. But if you notice in chapter 3 and verse 15, God also promises, even in the middle of that terrible curse, he also extends a promise to save mankind from sin and death through a descendant of the first woman. If you read, uh, look at chapter 3 and verse 15 where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head speaking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. It's much worse to have your head stepped on than to have your heel bitten, and that's the way it's going to work. The serpent's head is going to be stepped on by a descendant of the woman, even while the serpent maybe bites, takes a bite out of this man's heel. It's a vivid picture. The serpent's going to be destroyed, and the man is going to be injured in some way. So there's this promise that God extends, even in the middle of this curse, a promise to save mankind from sin, from death, from the serpent, from rebellion against God through a descendant of the first woman, through a descendant of Eve. And then we start to see glimpses of how he might do this. And, and we get these glimpses of how he might do this as the focus turns on specific people. In Genesis. First, Noah, then Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, even Joseph in some way. And you'll notice at key points in Genesis, you'll get these genealogical records that are tracing through the descendants of Adam. And that's not for just historical purposes. It is for historical purposes, but it's also to help us track the fulfillment of this promise to, help us to tra- helps us track with the fulfillment of that first promise of the gospel in the Bible, the promise of Genesis 3.15. Who is the descendant going to be? The promise that a descendant of the woman will come to step on the head of that deceiving serpent to make right what he has corrupted on the earth gets traced out through the book of Genesis, through these genealogies that track from Adam and beyond which is very good news, actually. Um, not only that he's gonna come, this descendant of Eve is gonna come, but that God tells us who it's gonna be and where he's gonna come from. So we'll see that as we work through Genesis, but we'll also see that before things get any better, before this promise is fulfilled, long before it's fulfilled, things will get much worse before they get better. That's the story of Genesis 6 to 11 you follow along, sin spirals out of control throughout the world, people get worse and worse, it gets to the point to where Moses makes this observation that people are only doing continually evil things, just all the time doing evil, nothing they're doing is good, sin just corrupts the whole human race, people get worse and worse, sin spirals out of control, and, and, and people provoke the Lord and he judges them in terrifying wrath. How does he do that? He does that through a flood. That's the point of the flood narrative in Genesis. God is wiping out nearly 100% of the earth's population. Not, and, and nearly 100% is an important point because he doesn't quite wipe everyone out and everything out. He actually saves one family led by a man who trusts in him named Noah. And he preserves two of every animal on the earth. And then what's he do? Starts over. Starts over with a new humanity and gives them the, the, essentially the same command that the first man and woman were given to, to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth and fill it and subdue it and honor God and reflect him to the creation, Noah and his family are given that charge after they're rescued from the flood, but then they just pick up where they left off. To the point. That in Genesis 11, mankind has conspired together to build a tower to impress God and show the rest of the world how great they are, how intelligent they are, how, how powerful they are, how resourceful they are. And they actually think that they can reach to this God who years before crushed the earth with a flood. Instead of filling the earth and glorifying God, Everywhere they go, humans gather together in cliques to glorify themselves. And so God judges them again, but in a far less violent sort of way, which is good news for us. This time he makes it so that the people can't work together anymore. How does he do that? He creates a whole slew of languages and makes it so that everyone is suddenly speaking different languages and can't understand each other. And so they can't work together anymore and then God scatters them throughout the world. He frustrates the plans of sinners. Just like the creator of all things is free to do anytime he so desires. And so he makes them fill the earth. This is where the nations of the world come from. He spreads them out through the earth to, to spread his image throughout the world just like they're commanded to do whether they like it or not. And so there's really no nice way to put it. There's no like K-love positive and encouraging way to put it here. By the end of chapter 11, the world is a mess. Sin has increased and it's, it's polluted societies in every place. Yes, image bearers are all throughout the world now, but they're corrupt image bearers refusing to glorify God as they're commanded. Sin has increased and it's touched everything on earth, every place on earth. And that promise of a serpent crushing descendant of Eve seems very, very far off. But then comes Genesis 12. Genesis 12, where we see that even though the world is a mess because of sin, God still has a plan to save it. And that's the thread that runs through Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, and then even throughout the rest of the Bible. Genesis is just the beginning of the story of the whole Bible, it connects to the whole of Scripture. And this is where the story of Abraham comes in. In Genesis, at the end of Genesis 11, beginning of Genesis 12, God calls a, a pagan moon worshiper from a place called Ur from among the Chaldeans to follow him. His name is Abram to begin with. His name is Abram until God changes his name to Abraham. So God commands Abram to leave his home and start traveling until God shows him the specific place that he will live. And he promises to do three big things for Abram, for Abraham, and through him. You can see this is in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. He promises three things to him. Number one, to make a great nation out of his descendants. Number two, to give those descendants a land to live in. And number three, to bless the whole world, and this word bless is a very rich, uh, rich idea, rich theme, which carries throughout the rest of the book. To bless, it's, it's the idea of rescuing, of redeeming, of restoring the whole world through this nation. So you get three things promised there in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. You get a seed or descendants. You get land to live in, and you get blessing somehow for the whole world through this one man and his family. That promise is what's called a covenant. And theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant. You can imagine why that is. The Abrahamic covenant, to be specific, it's, which is a covenant, uh, uh, if, we, if we back up, a covenant is an agreement. A covenant is a solemn promise or an oath We've seen a covenant already in Genesis. Um, think of the oath that God makes in Genesis 3.15 to, to promise that a descendant of Eve is gonna come and crush the serpent's head. That was a covenant. You could also think of the, the oath, the promise that God makes to Noah to never destroy the earth again with a flood. That's in Genesis 8, verses 20 through 22. That's called the Noahic covenant. Here God does the same thing with Abram, Abraham, whose name means father of a multitude, he makes a covenant with him. One that's spelled out and further explained over the next five chapters in Genesis, chapter 12 to chapter 17. The promise is a unconditional covenant. It's a unilateral covenant of descendants of land and of blessing for the whole world, which is an important covenant point in, in the story of Genesis. This connects back to that promise in Genesis 3.15. And it tells us that the promise made there to Adam and Eve, this descendant who will come to defeat the serpent, will be a descendant not just from Eve and Adam and Eve's line, but from Abraham's line as well. And then throughout the following 33 chapters, really, from chapter 8 to chapter 50 that promise is traced even further and it goes from Abraham to his son Isaac and then from Isaac to his son Jacob and then from Jacob to his son Judah which you can read about in Genesis 49. The covenant is passed from generation to generation which tells us that the promise of God to finally defeat the serpent who led mankind into sin in the garden and put away sin for good and bring blessing and redemption to the world, that promise will be fulfilled through a future descendant from Abraham's line. So God's plan to save the world, to bless the nations through Abraham's descendants then will be carried out through a future human earthly king from the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Judah. So by the end of the book of Genesis, we see this nation that God, uh, that, that, that started with Abraham. We find it growing and growing. It's just blossoming. God is keeping his promise to make and grow a new nation from Abraham. But, but the book ends, interestingly enough, with the nation in a time of great need time of famine, and so they turned to another nation for help, one of the oldest nations on earth, the nation of Egypt, and they turned to Egypt because Egypt has food, and they have food because God had sent one of Abraham's descendants, one of Jacob's sons named Joseph, there ahead of time to prepare them for this very thing. So by the end of Genesis, Abraham's descendants need food, or they're going to die off, and so they start heading to Egypt in droves in order to survive, and God provides for them there. He saves many lives through the provision that they receive in Egypt, and then that's where the book of Genesis ends. That's where it comes to a close. Now we know what's going to happen from there. Things will not ultimately go well in Egypt. The nation that started with Abraham is going to continue to grow, but eventually they're going to become slaves of the Egyptians and need to be rescued. But after all that God has done to create and grow and preserve this people, and with all that is riding on their preservation as a nation, do we really think that he's just going to leave them there? Not a chance. Not a chance. So the book of Genesis is not merely the historical record of the world or of the Jewish people for that matter. It's a message about a God who is omnipotent and is bent on blessing a world that is bent on rebelling against him. So as we work through our, our, our way through the book of Genesis, we should plan to learn a lot about God and a lot about ourselves and a lot even about our sin and its consequences and about the grace and the promises of God to save those who trust in him. Most importantly, though, we're going to learn about the one who has and who will come to crush the head of the serpent. To make the world better than it's ever been before. So I am looking forward to this. And uh, I hope, at least by next Sunday, you will be too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to open your word. Lord and hear you speak about yourself in it. Thank you for the book of Genesis, Lord, this this critical book that shows us where we've come from and where we're headed. We pray that you would make this a profitable journey, Lord, that you would you would bless us and sanctify us and teach us and convict us and humble us and encourage us as we work our way through it. Lord, we thank you that, that your word fits together so beautifully, so perfectly. We thank you that, that you have plans for this world, plans that are good and gracious and merciful. Plans that can help us make sense of our lives, make sense of our troubles, make sense of our pleasures and our goals and our relationships. Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom to us as we dig in to your word and as we dig into it together. May you teach us how to live in this world for your glory, how to glorify and enjoy you as you created us for. Lord, teach us through, through this study and bless us for the glory of Christ. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.